0: Informing America's
1: farmers and ranchers. This is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Jesse Allen.
2: Well, thank you very much for joining
3: us here today for Agriculture of America, AOA. Great to have you along for the ride as we have a lot to talk about issues impacting rural America and agriculture. I'm your host, Jesse Allen. Coming up on today's program at the end of the show today, we're going to learn more about the Global U.S. Soy Summit, Soy Connect. It is put on by the U.S. Soybean Export Council. Happening right now in New York City, we're going to talk to Patrick O'Leary from the Northern Soy Marketing Board about what is going on in New York City. Coming up here in segment four. In segment three, we're going to learn more about India's rice export ban and the impact it could have here on global markets. Tanner Emke, lead grains and oil seeds economist with CoBank, will be joining us. Also, in segment two, we're going to learn more about the uh, lesser prairie chicken issue that is going on in the western states, a new lawsuit in Kansas against the U.S., fish and wildlife uh, is something that we're keeping an eye on here. And we're going to be talking about that with Charles Yates, attorney with Pacific Legal coming up here on the show today. Actually, we're going to talk to Charles in segment three. We'll talk to Tanner Emke in segment two here today on AOA. So again, thank you so much for joining us on the program. Kicking things off here today, we want to recap the latest cattle on feed report and talk about what is going on in these cattle markets. Joining us now. Now, Chris Swift with Swift Trading Company based in Nashville, Tennessee. Chris, it is great to have you on AOA, sir. How are you?
1: Good morning, Jesse. I'm doing fantastic, sir. I hope you are.
3: I'm doing great as well, Chris. Thanks so much for joining us here on the program today. Well, looking at the latest cattle on feed report, the August 1st numbers down 2%, you know, looking through everything, it felt like the report neutral to fairly friendly for the market. Can you uh, recap the cattle on feed numbers and give us your take?
1: Sure. The biggest thing that we notice is the total number of cattle on feed being right at 11 million head. We had been trading between 11.5 and 11.7 million head, all the way up into the July time frame. We had increased beef uh, sales in there. We had more demand for the meat. And so we were able to push a little bit more of that meat out the door there. That's why our marketings were up just a little bit. And the placements are kind of interesting because we noted that in July we had a week that was just brutally hot, I mean across the entire United States. And I have a feeling that since a lot of those cattle were not moved in that time frame, That may be a little bit of why we were shyer on the placement number than what was expected. So in the month of August, you might want to note and see if there's not just a little bit of an increase more. And if it is, in those two months, probably average one another out.
3: Well, what is the impact of the cattle on feed numbers in the overall uh, market trade right now, Chris? I know Monday's activity, we were a bit higher, although we faded a little at the close. And, you know, overall, the live and feeder cattle markets both have felt like they've gotten a bit sideways here in the last couple of weeks. So what do you think the overall impact of the uh, latest numbers will be here moving forward?
1: I think stagnation more than anything. We have seen the sectors within the industry begin to make moves of their own, independent of everyone else. That being the packer has slowed the kill over the last several weeks, that intended to put less beef out onto the market, and we saw box beef prices rise over $15 in the last two weeks. So that is something that the packer was trying to control himself in order to regain some margin, and I think that he did as we see now more likely than not as there was almost no margin to the grocery store and or restaurant more likely they will have to raise prices as well then we come down to the cattle feeder and that's where everything has stopped because we're not real sure now that we get packer pushback how much higher can we actually get that fat market to go and that's where we're straining right now is to see whether or not that this level at 178 to 180 is the real level or do we drop back ten to fifteen dollars and begin trading there and that begins to allow margin to come back into multiple other sectors
3: we're talking with Chris Swift with Swift Trading Company based down in Nashville, Tennessee, here today on AOA. Chris, uh, thinking about um, the corn market and the impact on maybe some of those feeder margins. We've seen corn pull back here a little bit to try and find support around that 480-D's corn level. Is this a good time frame for folks to maybe think about uh, locking in some of those feed needs right now? What would you say there?
1: I think you have to be really conscious of the way the board is structured. The corn board has gone to full carry, suggesting that if you're going to pay the cheapest price, that is today. Today is the cheapest price of corn going all the way out. So instead of saying, I'm going to be booking corn out there, this would be a time frame where you would want to hedge your corn So if I am looking out into the future and saying I've got to have corn needs starting in January and running all the way through July or into August of next year, then I need to have hedges on primarily probably with just options in order to protect against something that may or may not happen. In the interim, believing that there is a large corn crop and we may see prices come down in corn, I've only got that option out there that might cost me a little bit of money, But in the long run, I'm hoping to pay for cheaper corn down the road.
3: Well, Chris, as well, I know you mentioned the impact of some of the hot weather we saw in July on cattle operations across the country. And and then obviously this week we're seeing another massive heat dome here across the country. Do you think that could have some impacts on maybe some of that cash trade activity here as we go through the week? Could it have some impacts uh, overall out there in feedlot country?
1: Probably carcass weight is where you would look at it the most. We tend to start seeing carcass weights gain towards the fall of the year. and I think this just sets it back a couple of more weeks. Instead of seeing more carcass pounds put on there, they're just not able to. They're fighting the heat. It's very uncomfortable. And humans are the same way. We don't like to get out and, and grill in a really hot 100-degree after- afternoon. We like to eat cooler things. We like to stay in the shade and have less activity, and those kinds of things just tend to not do very well for cattle.
3: Well, and I know as well, you think about that hot weather uh, with carcass weights, and we think about getting into the fourth quarter and beyond, you know, uh, wondering when are we going to start to really ramp up rebuilding this cattle herd. Chris, as you talk with ranchers out there in uh, in the plains, what's the latest you're hearing as far as some of that herd rebuilding and expansion? We know that this is is going to take some time to do that.
1: I think there is a lot of want to do it, but when we look at the actual ability, we have a lot more pressures facing the cow-calf operator, money being the very first one. If they're going to start today expanding, we're talking about holding back a heifer that could be worth $2,600. We're talking about maybe having to replace heifers at $2,600. Those type things plus the interest on the money, if, if we look at something that we're going to do with our money and we want to earn a return on it, you can place it on deposit now and earn a relatively good rate of return for that. Land is becoming an issue, and water is the number one issue, and we see more and more, and I've already heard you say about the lesser prairie chicken coming up, so again, there are more issues. Uh, Issues coming up with land that are going to be for towards cattle production out there. So we just need to be a little bit careful not to have our cow-calf producer go out gung-ho right here at the top. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, we appreciate the insight. Chris Swift with Swift Trading Company. Thanks for joining us here today on AOA.
1: Always a pleasure, Jesse.
3: All right, coming up next, we'll talk with Tanner Emke from CoBank here on AOA. Join us the first Wednesday of every month on AOA for the latest episode of The Monthly Grind with our friends at the National Corn Growers Association. We'll discuss the latest topics surrounding the corn industry, the relationships between corn and other parts of the agricultural supply chain, the newest initiatives and partnerships from NCGA's Market Development Action Team, and much more. That's the first Wednesday of every month for The Monthly Grind on AOA. It's a show you don't
0: want to miss.
2: When people look at your farm, they just see corn. But to you, it's a lot more than that. It's a college fund, your retirement plan. And it deserves trade protection that can stand up to heavy pressure threats like corn woodworm. Smart Stacks Pro with RNAI technology is trusted on over 1 million acres to protect the things that mean more. Trade up at SmartStacksPro.com. Always read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, where applicable, grain marketing, and all other stewardship practices. Copyright 2023 Bayer Group. All rights reserved.
5: keeping
1: America's farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen.
3: And joining us now here on the program, we want to get caught up on the latest that is going on with India's rice export ban. Some new research out from our friends at CoBank looking at the short and long-term side of this export ban for U.S. rice growers. Joining us now, he is the lead grains and oilseeds economist for CoBank. Tanner Emke is with us. Tanner, good to have you back on the program with us. I hope all's going well.
0: Yeah, great to be back here with you, Jesse.
3: Thanks for the time. So get us up to speed. We, we've heard a little bit about India's rice export ban, but it, it's something that I feel like we've kind of lost it in the news headlines here now the last uh, couple of weeks when since it was announced. So what exactly is India doing with this rice export ban? Let's start there.
0: Well, let's go back a bit. As you mentioned, it's been a little bit since they imposed this ban on the, in July 20th. Uh, India's government restricted exports of uh, non-Basmati rice, and they also clarified thereafter that it also the ban does not include uh, parboiled rice. So, uh, all told, uh, it's about 15% of the global rice trade. Uh, India is the world's la- world's largest uh, rice trader uh, by far. Uh, they account for about 40% of all. Global rice exports, but when you exclude Basmati, when you exclude parboiled rice, 15 percent of the world rice is now has now been pulled off the shelf, if you will, and that's no small amount. Uh, and as a result, rice prices around around the world have uh, been climbing upward quite quickly. Now, why would India do this? Well, it's they're heading into an election year. Uh, inflation mm-hmm. has been fairly high in the last month. They uh, b- before they pulled this or before they uh, imposed this ban, uh, food food inflation in India had been climbing quite quickly. And uh, this is not good politically. And they're also concerned about uh, El Nino, which is typically not good for India. It's going to be hot and dry. Uh, We've had some uh, uh, weather issues uh, in India as well uh, here recently. So they're concerned about the availability of rice. Uh, in their own country. They're concerned about food inflation, and they, the politicians want to get ahead of this and make it look like they're trying to do something uh, to quell uh, the rise of uh, uh, rice prices. Well, mm-hmm. unfortunately now, uh, this has driven rice prices around the world sharply higher. Uh, you're seeing this uh, most acutely over in Thailand. They're the second biggest uh, exporter, and also Vietnam and Pakistan. But really, you know, this is a story about Asian rice prices. And the concern now is that we're going to start seeing rice prices climb for the consumers here in the United States. We just haven't seen that happen, though. And the reason being is we are not short of rice in this country. We got a lot of rice coming on. We've got a bigger crop uh, that's just now being harvested down south. uh, Harvests or the combines are moving in Texas and Louisiana. They're making their way up into, into Arkansas, which is the number one rice producer. And we're going to have a much bigger crop this year. There is no threat whatsoever of the U.S. consumer being short on rice in this country. And so that's why our prices have not responded like they have over in Asia.
3: Well, Tanner, I know some of the new research that you guys have looked at from CoBank, you know, with our U.S. rice producers it's sounding like this export ban could be a bit of a, a short-term benefit, but maybe a challenge long-term. So can you expand upon that a little bit more? How, how can this be a benefit short-term and then turn into a challenge long-term for our U.S. rice
0: producers? Well, you raised a good question. In the short-term, we are going to benefit. Uh, we've got a big crop uh, that we are going to be able to export from, that we're going to be able to increase exports on. And so we're, what we're going to do is backfill some of this export demand. So a lot of these buyers around the world that do not like these higher prices over in Asia are going to call up the United States and say, what do you got? Uh, your rice is cheaper. Uh, let's see what we can work out. And so we're going to fill up uh, some of that uh, demand, uh, mostly in our backyard, if you will, uh, places like the Caribbean, places like Central and South America. Uh, Iraq is going to be uh, coming to the U.S. with their tender. They've, they uh, They've uh, signed an MOU uh, for about 200,000 tons of U.S. rice, and they're probably going to exceed that. And so we are going to benefit from this in the short term. That's going to lift rice prices, uh, and U.S. producers are going to be benefiting in the short term. On the other hand, as you pointed out there, Jesse, there is the long-term view that we got to be cognizant of. Remember, markets will be efficient. And what does this mean? What happens when prices go up? Do do farmers produce less or more? They're going to produce more uh, around the world. And so what the Indian government has done is artificially prompted an expansion of rice acreage around the world, especially over in Asia. And then at the same time, one day, uh, India is going to reverse this ban. And so they're going to dump a huge amount of rice onto the market. It's going to flood the world market at at a time when we've had expanded rice production. And world rice prices are going to respond respond accordingly. Our concern is that they will overcorrect and prices will be much lower uh, around the world and in in the U.S. uh, for a prolonged period of time is our concern. Uh, So although we are going to be benefiting in the short term, with uh, increased exports, it's the long-term view here that we are concerned about of a prolonged period of low prices.
3: Well, great insight on that, and we'll continue to watch. And it sounds like, uh, at least for now, U.S. rice farmers uh, going to have some uh, some benefits to take advantage of here. We're talking with Tanner M. Key, lead grains and oil seeds economist for CoBank Tanner want to turn my attention to just some of the other grains uh, that we continue to watch here. Obviously, the Black Sea issues are still a concern in the wheat market. And I know, too, that maybe there's been some talk about wheat possibly replacing rice in some countries here with India's export bans. So, I mean, you look at the the global wheat market and you look at how things stand there. What's your thoughts on on that side of the grains?
0: Well, let's talk about wheat Uh, prices. Uh, have oddly not been responding to this uh, military escalation that we've seen, not to the degree that a, a lot of people have thought. Uh, you know, you've got escalating tensions between the Ukrainians and Russians in the Black Sea, some questions of if we're going to see uh, rice or, excuse me, wheat exports uh, drop materially uh, out of that region. And that hasn't been the case. Uh, you have a couple of things going on there. The Ukrainian Navy... Uh, is uh, creating a safe passage uh, for some of these cargoes uh, of wheat from uh, Ukraine uh, into the world market. But at the same time as well, you have Russia to contend with and their crop. Uh, Russia is expected to have record wheat exports this year. They had a very very big crop. It's down from last year, but uh, last year was a record-sized crop. Uh, So this year is also a very big crop. And then when you include last year's uh, big carryover stocks, you've got uh, a record amount of uh, uh, wheat stockpiled uh, in Russia that needs to move that needs to be moved out into the world export market. And at the same time, look what's happening to their currency. Uh, their currency is, I guess, for lack of a better term, a dumpster fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has dropped by a third, and so you've got an abundance of uh, cheap Russian wheat. Uh, entering the global market, and that's holding down global wheat prices. And so to your point, as you mentioned earlier, uh, you have some of these global rice importers scratching their heads saying, do we really need to be importing rice or maybe we can switch over to an uh, alternative food grain like wheat at a much cheaper price? And so I think that's probably what's happening right now is we're seeing a shift of global demand uh, over to wheat. And and that's going to that's going to be depleting our uh, our wheat reserves that much faster because when you look at USDA's uh, latest projections, uh, we're going to be tight on wheat this year. Uh, Although we've had an expansion of production or a big uh, crop over in Russia, we've got other smaller crops around the world. You've got some uh, weather issues over in uh, China, some weather concerns Mm -hmm. over in India. You add up all these concerns and now now you're going to be a little tight on wheat supplies going forward. So our view is that Although wheat prices are low right now, markets will be efficient. You can't escape that rule. I think we're going to see a bounce uh, later in the year.
3: Corn and soybean wise, a few thoughts there real quick before we run out of time. Uh, Tanner, I know a lot of the focus is squarely on finishing out the U.S. growing season here. Uh, Some late season weather concerns for soybeans with hot and dry weather right now. But overall, Feels like between that and then the the continued uh, big crop movement out of South America, that seems to be the the two big factors impacting corn and soybean markets right now, Tanner.
0: As long as we're seeing uh, crop conditions uh, recover, uh, that's going to cause the market to extract some risk premium out of prices. Now, you mentioned it's going to be hot out there. The market's going to have to add a a little bit of risk premium back in, especially for soybeans as they're setting pods right now. A lot of the corn crop is now past that critical window, which with so much of the crop having already gone through the silking stage, and now it's in the dough stage, and so that critical window for corn is kind of closing. Uh, We're not out of the window. We're not out of the the woods yet. We still need pods. We still need good weather. But really, these hot conditions, as you pointed out, Jess, are more of a concern for soybeans.
3: Well, you can see more of their latest research online, Cobank.com underneath the Knowledge Exchange tab. With that, Tanner Emke, Lead Grains and Oil Seeds Economist with CoBank. Thanks so much for joining us here today on AOA. Good to be with you. All right, coming up next here on AOA, an issue we have covered before on the show is the Lesser Prairie Chicken Habitat Rule. A new lawsuit in Kansas looks to put a stop to that rule. We're going to learn more about the situation with Pacific Legal Foundation attorney Charles Yates. That's next here on AOA. Are you heading to the Farm Progress Show in Decatur? Stop by the Trelleborg booth on 10th Street and see Mike Pearson and me, Jesse Allen, broadcasting live. Learn about the HF-1000 and features that minimize soil compaction. We will be broadcasting live from Trelleborg booth 1062 from 9 to 10 a.m. on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday from the Farm Progress Show. That's Trelleborg booth 1062 from 9 to 10 a.m. We'll see you in Decatur.
5: Challenge. It's not something you shy from. It's a chance to up your game. Every day brings a new challenge. But with the Enhanced Channel Seed brand on your side, you can rise to it. With our top-performing seed, innovative digital tools, and expanded agronomic support, you can turn tomorrow's challenges into your next advantage. Your Enhanced Channel Seed brand. Let's rise to the challenge. Learn more at channel.com slash rise. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices.
8: You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Risvet with this market update. The grains are hovering around unchanged this morning in light trade, while in livestock, fats and feeders are mixed, hogs are lower. Yesterday was day one of the pro-farmer Midwest crop tour, and it found generally good corn and soybean crops in both Ohio and in South Dakota. Now, that's not really a surprise, but we will be interested in what they find as they get deeper into Nebraska today and into Iowa and Illinois tomorrow. Now, the day one results still fit with expected yield projections, but observations the next couple of days will tell us a great deal more. Now, we may find more problems than expected in the next couple of days. That's mixed in with some excellent results as well. Unfortunately, though, in the big picture, the demand outlook for corn is so poor, not yet reflected by USDA, that we could take quite a yield hit and still have ample supplies. But the same can't yet be said for soybeans because we just don't know whether China will use its newly increased reserves to reduce U.S. purchases going forward. Now, in China, large portions of the northeast remain wet. That's following a period of extreme rains that fell on corn and soybean crops in the region. However, the local cash market is currently factoring in overall crop losses of less than what we've seen in the past several years, with the forecast generally favorable to finish the growing season. Chinese buyers were again active buyers of Brazilian beans last week, purchasing roughly 35 cargoes during the period. Nearly 20 of those cargoes were for September and October shipment. That's removing the need to buy from the United States during this traditionally active shipping period. Now, Brazil has so many soybeans following its recent bumper harvest that it continues to have cheaper supplies available due to currency exchange rate advantages. Chinese buyers are also concerned about the added cost of pulling U.S. beans through the Panama Canal, where drought has slowed shit movement through its locks, creating a 20-day wait currently. Crude oil is hovering around unchanged, but just slightly higher. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Ristvet.
9: I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and... ...and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like?
6: Yes, go again.
9: Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win.
2: (laughs) Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner, too. Through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station.
1: Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed a-o-a now back to jesse allen well recently a group of kansas
3: ag producers in the kansas natural resource coalition filed suit against the u.s fish and wildlife service to block the endangered species act protective regulations for the lesser prairie chicken and this story uh, an interesting one we want to talk a little bit more about it and some of the impacts that we're seeing for those uh, Kansas farmers and more. Joining us now, attorney with Pacific Legal Foundation, we have with us here today on the program Charles Yates. Charles, thanks for joining us here on AOA today. How are you? I'm
7: doing very well, Jesse. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.
3: Well, uh, as I was mentioning, this story kind of caught my eye for, uh, Kansas, uh, farmers down there and the, uh, Kansas NRC, the natural resource coalition. And we've been covering the lesser prairie chicken issues here on AOA for, for quite some time now. So can you just background, can you give us a, a kind of an overview of what this, uh, suit is and just kind of give us a background overall what's going on?
7: Yes. Yes. We'd be glad to. So, uh, Late last year, in November of 2022, the United States Fish and Wildlife Service uh, listed two populations of the lesser prairie chicken under the Endangered Species Act. Uh, in, uh, around the Permian Basin, Texas, Oklahoma, it listed a southern distinct population segment as endangered under the Endangered Species Act. And then it listed a northern population, which is located primarily throughout western Kansas, as threatened. Now, that endangered threatened distinction is really quite significant. So, little bit of background on the Endangered Species Act. The Endangered Species Act, uh, it enables the federal government, the United States Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, to list species as either endangered or threatened based on the risk of extinction that they face. Now, endangered species are those species uh, at really dire risk of extinction. Threatened species, less so. Now, it's really significant. The Endangered Species Act, it uh, it provides for staggering regulation of private land use activity, staggering regulation of of any private activity, ordinary land use activities, because for endangered species, uh, it provides a prohibition against the take of the species. Now, mm-hmm. that term takes sort of the, the classical legal understanding of it. When you think about it, it, it really calls to mind something like hunting, capturing deliberate activities directed towards uh, a species. However, the Fish and Wildlife Service interprets this authority incredibly broadly uh, to include not just those sort of... Um, deliberate activities, but incidental activities, really anything, something that might modify a species habitat could be take. So ordinary land use activities can give rise to this take prohibition. And that's significant because there are significant civil and criminal penalties for violating it. Now, Mm -hmm. the distinction between endangered and threatened comes into play here. As I said, endangered species like that southern population of the lesser prairie chicken, Congress recognized, well, they're at, at grave risk of extinction. So we're going to automatically provide for this prohibition. For threatened species, there's no such automatic prohibition. Instead, the Endangered Species Act provides that when a species is listed as threatened, the Fish and Wildlife Service may, if necessary and advisable, extend these protections. Now, this brings in the lesser prairie chicken. Mm-hmm. When it listed the lesser prairie chicken, it provided a, a staggering array of regulations under that TAG prohibition, extending those TAG prohibitions to this threatened species. But what it didn't do is it made absolutely no justification for doing so. It simply just said we're going to extend all of these regulations with a few exceptions, and we're going to do it because that's what's best for the species. Now, the Endangered Species Act does not allow for that to occur. The the Fish and Wildlife Service must justify uh, regulation of private land use activity when it decides to do so because of the staggering economic uh, uh, repercussions of what it's done. And that's what we're challenging here. Uh, We have a a group of clients, local government jurisdictions, farmers, ranchers who operate in western Kansas, and they're they're now facing serious and severe prohibitions on their ordinary land use activities. And the Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, it simply hasn't done what it's required to do to justify uh, placing these prohibitions on our clients.
3: Well, and I think about this as well. You think about just uh, farmers and ranchers. They are our stewards of the land. You know, they're used to taking care of the land and, and putting these restrictions on them. Have to think it, it really kind of puts them in a bind here uh, for them to manage their lands and, and for, you know, some of the general conservation efforts that they undertake each and every day, Charles.
7: That's a very good point to make, Jesse. And I think that's what's so insidious about this regulation because the Fish and Wildlife Service just didn't take that into account. And if you look at our clients here, so going into the sort of the specifics of the regulation, uh, it prohibits all manner of ordinary land use activities that could somehow harm the species through habitat modification, et cetera. But it provides a few exceptions. One exception is for row crop agriculture. So lands that have previously been converted Uh, to to row crop uh, farming because the the species isn't there. It also provides uh, exceptions for certain ranching activities provided you get a permit from the federal government uh, as well as certain fire activities. Now, what's so insidious here is our clients, their ranchers, right? Operating their land to its highest and best use involves maintaining very large contiguous areas of native grassland habitat. So they've been stewarding the habitat for the lesser prairie chicken. Unlike uh, some other operators in that area who may just be operating traditional row crop farming, our clients and most ranches in Western Kansas have been operating their ranches to provide for really large areas of native grass and habitat, which are essential to the species conservation. So really what this regulation is doing, it's punishing them for their stewardship of the land, right? If they -hmm. they had uh, converted their land to row crop agriculture 20, 30 years ago and maintained that, They wouldn't have to worry as much about this regulation, but but because they have maintained these large areas of grassland, stewarded their land, they're now being punished. And that's precisely what's wrong with the Endangered Species Act. The Endangered Species Act to recover species, it relies upon the stewardship of private landowners. 96% of the lesser prairie chickens' habitat is on private land. Mm -hmm. And by punishing landowners who have been maintaining that habitat, the Fish and Wildlife Service, it shoots itself in the foot and it actually harms the species.
3: Well, I, I wonder as well. I, I need to ask Charles with this suit. I know it's in the U.S. District Court for the District of Kansas. Uh, while this suit is ongoing, does it does it block the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service from from taking any action against landowners? Is this something that th- they're they're free of worry until a decision is reached? How, how does that all work?
7: So uh, the regulation took effect earlier this year so as okay. things currently stand that full suite of prohibitions are in effect now we're seeking to have the those regulations vacated through the litigation but okay. it could take uh, a year 18 months maybe two years to get to that point just because of the litigation process
3: now if uh, if ranchers have questions i i would have to think i mean, I mean who, who, who should they ask if they have questions about some of the activities that that they're undertaking on their land, with some of these regulations in place, I, I guess I I wonder some folks might be listening in, wondering where do they turn to clarify things for them, possibly.
7: Yeah. So the the, the Fish and Wildlife Services you know provides resources for that as as well as yeah. others. But it's it's difficult, and really something you know going to that point. What's really insidious about this regulation is it it permits for certain ranching activities, grazing activities to occur if they're done uh, pursuant to a, a quote unquote site specific grazing plan approved by a, a, a service approved provider. Okay. So what what this regulation has done, in order to insulate you know if ranchers wish to insulate themselves from these these prohibitions on take, they need to go. Uh, to a private consultant that's been approved by the Fish and Wildlife Service and get get permission and a, and a management plan just to turn cattle out on, on their own property. It's really a staggering regulation of private land use and a, a staggering insertion of the federal government into, into private land use activities in western Kansas.
3: Well, and I have to think that if they you know, have to go hire a consultant, that's got to have a, a pretty big economic burden on our ranchers as well, Charles.
7: That's, that's precisely right. The, the regulation by effectively prohibiting all of these activities as well as requiring consultants and things of that nature, it has staggering economic implications. And that's really the, the issue. That's the sort of legal issue we're getting at here. So the Fish and Wildlife Service, it's authorized to, to extend, take prohibitions to threaten species, but it has to make a finding that it's quote unquote necessary and advisable to do so. And the supreme court has made very clear in recent years particularly in the context of environmental regulation that while true federal government can do something if it's necessary and advisable if congress has said that but that necessarily requires a consideration of costs and benefits and the fish and wildlife service has blatantly refused you know in its decision making prior to issuing these regulations has blatantly refused to consider the economic costs to private landowners. And that's a serious problem because it results in a regulation that's inherently arbitrary. The federal government has not done what it's supposed to do. I mean, it's an important point to make the Fish and Wildlife Service. It's an executive branch agency. Right. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have inherent power over the lives of ordinary Americans. Right. Elected representatives in Congress who passed the Endangered Species Act. They're the policymakers here. They're the ones that can can balance these considerations. The Fish and Wildlife Service can only act pursuant to what Congress has authorized it to do. And Congress made very clear that due to the burdens associated with ESA regulation, 4D regulation, the Fish and Wildlife Service must consider costs and benefits. And it's it's refused to do so.
3: Well, Charles, uh, we will continue to watch this case and uh, watch for updates as it works through the legal system. Before we let you go, any final thoughts you want to share or reiterate for folks listening today?
7: i think it's just a a really important note to make that executive branch agencies like the fish and wildlife service they're not a law unto themselves they have to act in accordance with the law they cannot act illegally or arbitrarily and they must consider the costs and benefits of their actions they've failed to do so here and this regulation is illegal and we look forward to fighting it in court
3: well thank you very much for the time and the insight into this ongoing issue there in kansas charles yates attorney at pacific legal foundation Thank you for joining us here on AOA today, and uh, we'll look forward to talking to you in the future. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jesse.
7: I appreciate it.
3: All right, coming up next here on AOA, before we wrap up today's program, the Global U.S. Soy Summit is ongoing in New York City. It's put on by the U.S. Soybean Export Council. We're going to learn more about what is happening there this week. Patrick O'Leary from the Northern Soy Marketing Board will join us next here on AOA.
2: A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ed Council. This is Around the Table,
3: where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we're talking with Christian Roloff, an Allegiant Seed Product Specialist, about cover crops. Christian, what are some agronomic benefits from planting cover crops?
6: Reduce soil compaction, break up soil compaction, those hard pans that we sometimes get from running the plow across the ground year after year after year nutrient storage, nutrient production from something like legume crop. A lot of times we'll get nodule production on the roots, start to generate some nitrogen there in the soil. That's one. Another one, if you have livestock on the operation, could be some free forage. Maybe not necessarily a uh, agronomic benefit, but an overall benefit to the operation. Erosion control is one of the bigger ones that we hear about, talked about. Wind, water erosion either way. I've seen huge benefits from cover crops. Weed suppression, where we introduce a plant. The less ground that there is available for, Weeds to germinate and grow. We can reduce weed suppression, disease control, and some of our typical, more common crop rotations, such as corn, soybean, or maybe a wheat fallow rotation.
3: How do cover crops help to build soil health?
6: Enhancing the microbiology or or the microorganisms in the soil and just improving their environment, getting more activity, longer lifespan throughout the growing season. That's really what soil health is and then increasing the organic content, the organic matter in the soil through additional root growth, additional plant growth, more organisms going in the soil helping build that organic matter content throughout the year, across many years potentially, will help improve water holding capacity and then nutrient capacity as well.
3: Christian, how do cover crops fit into typical crop rotations?
6: Identify what your goals are. That'll actually help guide what species you want to plant. If you're looking to simply break up soil compaction, radishes and turnips might be the best option. First, if you're looking to maybe get some nitrogen production where you're gonna look more towards the legumes, maybe a pea, a vetch, something along those lines.
3: Thank you for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com.
2: When people look at your farm, they just see corn. But to you, it's a lot more than that. It's a college fund. Your retirement plan, and it deserves trade protection that can stand up to heavy pressure threats like corn woodworm. SmartStacks Pro with RNAI technology is trusted on over 1 million acres to protect the things that mean more. Trade up at SmartStacksPro.com. Always read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM where applicable, grain marketing, and all other stewardship practices. Copyright 2023 Bayer Group. All rights reserved.
3: Are you heading to the Farm Progress Show in Decatur? Stop by the Trelleborg booth on 10th Street and see Mike Pearson and me, Jesse Allen, broadcasting live. Learn about the HF-1000 and features that minimize soil compaction. We will be broadcasting live from Trelleborg booth 1062 from 9 to 10 a.m. on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday from the Farm Progress Show. That's Trelleborg booth 1062 from 9 to 10 a.m. We'll see you in Decatur.
1: Informing America's Farmers and Ranchers, AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen
3: welcome back to AOA we turn our attention now to New York City not typically a place we go to when we're talking about agriculture but happening there this week is the global U.S. soy summit soy Connect. it's put on by the U.S. soybean export council and joining us now he is attending the event he is the chair of the northern soy marketing board Patrick O'Leary is with us here on AOA today Patrick thanks for making the time to join us today how are you
4: I'm doing great. How are you?
3: I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for being on AOA here with us today. So uh, first off, uh, give us a little background on the Northern Soy Marketing Board for folks who may not be aware. I know a lot of our soybean farmers and more across Nebraska, North Dakota, South Dakota, Wisconsin, and Minnesota are probably aware. That's where you guys are are made up of and based out of uh, with uh, soybean checkoff boards from those five states. Can you just give us a little background on the uh, Northern Soy Marketing Board first?
4: And so, so we're a board that was there, a group that was put together, well, it's been quite a few years ago, and really our goal in the group was to promote the quality of, of soybeans grown in the upper Midwest. And, and mainly soybeans are states that we're, were moving soybeans and soybean meal out the PNW or the Pacific Northwest. So we we, uh, we joined the forces. Uh, like I said, there's five states. Um, we're really a, a group that focuses on building relationships and and bringing information to customers. And a lot of Southeast Asia is is where we've done a lot of our focus. Now we're starting to look at some opportunities possibly going out the St. Lawrence Seaway in the future. Um, But it's really a a group that's one of the – our emphasis has been talking about quality of of U.S. or upper Midwest-grown soybeans is really what we've been doing
3: Well, obviously, that is why you guys are attending the Soy Connects here this week, uh, the Global U.S. uh, Soy Summit here being put on uh, in New York City. And uh, thinking about your attendance there, I know this is uh, such a great event uh, as you do. A lot of those things you just mentioned, looking at promoting high-quality beans to international buyers here this week. Can you talk a little bit more just uh, about the event and how things are going? Yes.
4: So it it started this morning. Well, it kicked off yesterday with some trade team invitations that Usec did, and also last night a reception. The the main seminars kicked off this morning. Um, My understanding, there's about 700 people in attendance here, somewhere in that range. Uh, About 59 countries represented in the audience. Um, So really an opportunity to see people from all over the world and and uh, and in multiple facets. You know, we have people that are buying commercial feed soybeans for animals, we get people buying soybean, meal, people buying food grade. So a whole lot of just general soybean buyers and a great opportunity to be able to network with them and have conversations about the quality of the U.S. and Upper Midwest Soybeans.
3: Well, and I have to think, yeah, some of those face-to-face conversations so crucial as we're looking at promoting, you know, high-quality beans and exporting uh, U.S. soybeans to some of these markets. Like you mentioned, a lot of those Asian markets have been very high on the priority list and more. I, I just have to think that it's, it's a lot easier for things to maybe happen with a, a face-to-face conversation versus a, a phone call or, or a Zoom meeting or something like that, Patrick.
4: Well, you know, I agree. You know, our, our goal in our group has always been to try to do face-to-face meetings, whether it's bringing people into the into the United States, you know, uh, NSM or Northern Soy Marketing, we have an opportunity here coming in September that we're bringing about 10 individuals from Indonesia and Thailand in to show them our farms and talk about our quality. Um, in turn, we go over a couple times a year and have face-to-face meetings. And that ability to have relationships and understand each other's businesses is a is a big part of, of building building business for US soy so or or northern girl soy beans that, for that matter.
3: We are talking with Patrick O'Leary, the chair of the Northern Soy Marketing Board here today on AOA. He is attending Soy Connect right now in New York City. It's a global US Soy Summit put on by the U.S. Soybean Export Council. Patrick, what do you see as maybe some of the uh, challenges in front of soybean growers here in the U.S. as we work through the rest of this year and move forward and some challenges maybe on, on the export front? Do you see any? And are if you are, are you trying to address some of those challenges this week there in New York City?
4: Well, I think... One of the biggest challenges we always have in in USA is is price, whether whether it be price um, probably is the thing that's most obvious. And right now, some of the economic things that are going on in the U.S., having a strong U.S. dollar and things, adds to some of our uh, maybe challenges. But in that matter, you know, there's a lot of discussions about the, the quality and the performance of the U.S. soybean versus some of our competition soybeans. So, there's a lot of discussion around bringing value to the customers and overcoming some of those price challenges and, and cost challenges because of the value we really believe we can bring better value to the customers. So.
3: Well, on the same token here, Patrick, what are some of the uh, what are some of the victories that maybe you're, you're celebrating and/or touting uh, here this week at SoyConnect?
4: Well, I, I, I think there's a lot of little victories and, and a lot of things that go on, but I, I think that the, the one thing that we have is is we're looking at having a, a fairly good crop this year, and we're excited about that. And so being able to, to bring that information to our customers about our farms and, and you know, I, I think that's a victory in itself, just having the customers come here and have to show the interest that, that they do in our product and, and uh, be able to, you know, uh, you know when you look at victories I, it's hard to to pick one thing but I, I think we're seeing a lot of our customers really understand our product and and understand our goals and and why we we think we're superior and that that's a huge victory to us when the when the customers understand those things.
3: Well, I know folks can learn more about the Northern Soy Marketing Board online at soyquality.com. We've been talking with the chair of the Northern Soy Marketing Board, Patrick O'Leary. He is out at Soy Connect in New York City this week. Patrick, thanks so much for the time here on AOA. We'll look forward to talking to you again soon. All right. Thank you. And that is going to do it for today's episode of AOA, Agriculture of America. Coming up on tomorrow's program, we're going to have a conversation with Chuck Connor from the National Council of Farmer Cooperatives. We'll also talk supply chains, get an update on things there with Dr. Jason Miller from Michigan State University. We'll recap the latest milk production report, and we'll also talk some markets with Ed Usset from the University of Minnesota. All that and more coming up on the next AOA. I'm Jesse Allen. Have a great day rest of your day join us every Tuesday for around the table brought to you by CHS where we take a close look at the benefits of cooperative ownership Every week, we'll host a new guest and discuss how you can get the most from working with your local cooperative. And we'll learn why farmers and ranchers just like you choose cooperatives to help them persevere and prosper. Tune in each Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more.
5: Challenge. It's not something you shy from. It's a chance to up your game. Every day brings a new challenge, but with the Enhanced Channel Seed brand on your side, you can rise to it. With our top performing seed, innovative digital tools, and expanded agronomic support, you can turn tomorrow's challenges into your next advantage. Your Enhanced Channel Seed brand. Let's rise to the challenge. Learn more at channel.com slash rise. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices.